Good morning, everyone. I'm Mike Connolly. I'm the uh, current chair of the board of A Way Out, and I uh, want to thank you all for coming out this morning and uh, into the early afternoon, eventually. Uh, it's been great so far. I've got the pleasure of introducing uh, John Caldwell, and uh, we just met last night. John is the medical director at uh, Meadows Behavioral Health in Arizona, which a lot of you, I'm sure, are familiar with. Uh, John grew up in Utah, and he told me last night that immediately upon graduating from high school, he began work as a nurse assistant in Castle Rock and uh, Parker, Colorado. And at the time, 1990, it was the uh, height of the AIDS crisis, and so John had some very interesting work right at, uh, as an 18-year-old out of high school. Uh, after that, he went to, uh, back to Utah where he got his undergraduate degree. He went to uh, Kansas City, Missouri or, uh, for his medical degree, went back to Utah, did his residency there, and then got a PhD at UC Davis uh, before uh, heading to Meadows. And uh, I would like to welcome him back to Colorado from uh, from his early days in, in his medical career, and he's going to tell us a little bit about what's happened in between the ensuing, uh, how many years is that? Uh, the ensuing 29 years. Uh, so please help me welcome John, and uh, I'm going to turn it over to him. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Thank you very much. Uh, it's such a pleasure to be here with all of you. Uh, it is fun to be back in Colorado. Um, Cedar used to put on a conference called Gender Matters. And uh, they invited me out to that conference for a number of years. And I got to know wonderful people in this community um, who are really working to get uh, people into recovery. And so I have some dear friends in the audience and a bunch of new people that I'm excited to get to know. Colorado's an interesting place. We were just talking about marijuana. And uh, we have a lot of young people who want to move to Colorado just for the marijuana. And I was working with this young person from Colorado, and she was really upset. She was, you know, day two of recovery in a treatment center. She was unhappy to be there. She was um, pretty grumpy. And she was, I'm a psychiatrist, and so she was like, you need to get me a nicotine patch. You know, she said, you need to get me a patch right now. And I said, we can get you a nicotine patch. And she said, no, I want a weed patch. <laughs> and I, I thought, OK, we're in a different era. She wants a, she wants a weed patch. And you know, I'm thinking, you know, just like uh, Dr. Grizzle said, like, um, you know, you, that kid is probably going to end up with 14 or 15 patches on her body, you know, just never enough. Um, this is a really interesting lineup of people. Um, I got a chance to meet with Judy and with John and spend some time with them, and this is really fun to present with them. Um, Judy's a wonderful scientist, great presenter, as you've noted. And I come out of a tradition, I sort of have been walking this line between mind-body for a long time. Uh, back in undergraduate, I actually was trained in Reiki, and I was really into a lot of very woo-hoo sort of stuff. and. Um, and then I went to medical school and got really serious about science. And then I went to my training in psychiatry, where I really was looking at the brain and neuroscience, but also what it is to be a human being, you know, like what it is to try and do life in this body. 
And then um, I got very interested in trauma. I started seeing that a lot of my clients were suffering from childhood trauma, and that had a huge <laughs> impact on them years later. And I became very interested on why that would be. And so I went back to school and did a PhD in human development looking at attachment. Um, and really, my framework has a lot to do with attachment theory, with the idea that our brain develops in the context of other human beings, that we are fundamentally social creatures, and that we develop in that social context and milieu. And then, you know, I was 18 years into schooling and thought maybe I should do something with my life, and um, I went to the Meadows. And the Meadows does great trauma treatment, and it really has been a wonderful home for me. Um, it's a place where I can put all of that together, the science and the research and the kind of uh, healing journey um, that I have done myself and still continue to do. And part of that healing journey has been mindfulness. I know that's a tough word these days because it's now become kind of attached to so much. It's hard to know what mindfulness really is. Uh, but just learning to be here with what is here, learning to be present with whatever's coming up, learning to say okay to my experience in this present moment, not needing to drug it, drink it, sex it, food it away, you know, which was my MO for a lot of, a lot of years. How do I really wake up to my experience as it is in this moment without needing it to be something else, you know? So that's been, uh, that's been a little bit about my journey to this point. Uh, it's interesting because I can't see my own slides from this vantage point. Um, so I brought my laptop up and I thought, oh, that'll work, but I have to make sure that I click this and click this or it could get, could get challenging, so we'll see. Um, each person is born with an unencumbered spot, free of expectation and regret, free of ambition and embarrassment, free of fear and worry, an umbilical spot of grace. It is this spot of grace that issues peace. To know this spot of inwardness is to know who we are, not by surface markers of identity, not by where we work or what we wear, or how we like to be addressed, but by feeling our place in relation to the infinite and by inhabiting it. The nature of becoming is a constant filming over of where we begin, while the nature of being is a constant erosion of what is not essential. Each of us lives in the midst of this ongoing tension, growing tarnished or covered over only to be worn back to that incorruptible spot of grace at our core. When the film is worn through, we have moments of enlightenment, moments of wholeness, moments of clear living when inner meets outer, moments of full integrity of being, moments of complete oneness. And whether the film is a veil of culture, of memory, of mental or religious training, of trauma, or sophistication, the removal of that film and the restoration of that timeless spot of grace is at the goal of all therapy and education. Regardless of subject matter, this is the only thing worth teaching, how to uncover that original center and how to live there once it is restored. So that's Mark Nepo. Um, I spent some time with a couple of men in this, uh, in this group, actually, in San Diego 
and we read a lot of Mark Nepo. And by the end of that period of time, uh, we we called our little session "Finding Nepo." <laughs> and um, and uh, so I love I love this. Um, it's showing the slide that says Mark Nepo. I hope. Oh, <laughs> yeah. This is not going to work. I'm going to do what Judy did. All right. There we go. The camera will have a hard time finding me, but this will be easier for me. So um, I agree with Mark Nepo that there's this sort of um, the essence of who we are. And trauma, because it, especially when it happens in childhood, involves survival. We do what we need to do to survive. We adapt. And those survival techniques are not meant to be kind of, you know, long-term patterns for self-actualization. They're not sort of like, you know, eternal happiness. Those patterns are really for short-term survival. But we can hang on to those patterns for a long time because they're born out of the crucible of that traumatic experience. And they get lodged in the brain. And so recovery in some ways isn't so much about a layering on as it is kind of an undoing. They, uh, there's this yogi from from India, and he was asked, are you Hindu? And he said, I'm more of an undo. <laughs> and the process of recovery is really oftentimes about undoing the various patterns that keep us sick, the ways that we've protected, the ways that we've tried to project what we want others to see about us, the ways that we've you know, tried to hide the mess inside. All of that, we have to get back to the essence of who we are. And I believe that there is an essence to us that's always been there, that's sort of timeless, that incorruptible spot of grace as Mark Nepo would say. So I'm very interested in that process. Now, I'm a scientist. Uh, I do research. But I started my talk out with a poem, which is kind of weird. Um, but I'm going to try and walk this balance between science and something else, this sort of healing journey that I think is really important. Well, the nature of being, as Mark Nepo says, really depends on the nurture of being, that we are better able to really just be and not have to become, as Mark Nepo said, that process of always becoming something, but just sort of settling into our being depends a lot, a lot on how we were nurtured. And really good nurturing sets us up so that we're just more comfortable in our own skin. So, so we can say, oh, I feel this way right now, and it's OK that I express my emotions. I have worth and value. People won't run away from me when they see my mistakes, right? And attachment has a lot to do with that nurturing process. And attachment is really about two main things. It's about a safe haven, a place to go in times of need. When we're hungry, sick, tired, when we're lonely, we reach out. Literally, as infants, we reach out to make connection. That's the safe haven. But we also need to be able to explore our world. We need a secure base to launch from. We need to be able to learn new things, explore new environments, meet new people. So the essence of a secure attachment relationship is really one that embodies both the safe haven, coming back home to safety, and then going back out into the world from that secure base and exploring. And this happens again and again and again. I spend some time in airports. And um, you can watch this with little kids, right? They leave their loved one, and they kind of have this really kind of nervous curiosity, right? Like, oh, I'm, I'm far. 
I'm really going far from you. And then they run back to their loved one and they give a hug, right? That's the safe haven. And then they do it again. They're testing out what does it mean to move into the world but have a place to go in times of need. That's the essence of secure attachment. And we need that. As human beings, we have more optimal development when we have that. Now, what I've learned after giving a lot of talks is that many of us have not had that. And I get this look on people's faces like, oh, crap. Like, I didn't get that. I'm screwed, you know? I had one person that actually was like in the audience, and then she stood up and she said, this is rubbish. And she was like, get to the point. Help me understand how I'm supposed to fix this, you know? So uh, as a researcher and as a scientist, we can spend a lot of time like talking about the problem and not have solutions. Um, but I really believe there's a solution. So the brain is primed and ready for that attachment relationship. We're ready as infants to soak up close relationships, to learn through contact with other human beings. Our brain is just wired to soak that up, much like our brain is wired to learn language. Judy told me a story about being in Italy with her little one, and her little one soaked up Italian. Right? Our brain can just do that just picks out the different language pieces out of the ether and starts to put together a language in the brain. You don't have to teach them grammar, right? You don't have to do flashcards. They just do it because the brain's ready to do that. The brain's ready to do relationships. We're ready to learn about when do I move in? What is safe? Who can I trust? What am I okay myself? Do people like me? Do they want me around? We learn all that before we learn it. We don't learn it from flashcards. We learn it in the context of that daily in and out relationship with people that we love. Right? And so, can we learn a new language later in life? That's the question. Can we learn the language of secure attachment later in life? And I believe we can. We just don't soak it up like we did when we were infants, but you can learn a new language later in life. Even old people like me can learn a new language. I learned Japanese, which is a very difficult language. Uh, but I could, I could hold my own, you know. Um, so it's not easy. We just don't soak it up. But if we need to learn the language of secure attachment, we can do that. And we can teach the people that we work with in recovery who didn't get that how to get that. Well, a therapeutic process is a little bit like an attachment relationship. It's a very intimate process that we do with people in recovery, right? So if we know something about attachment, we can actually help these people move forward in their healing journey. Well, there's a couple of things that contribute to attachment. One is a mirror neuron system. This was discovered by Italians, actually. And um, they were working with non-human primates. And what they found was that he much like this cup of water here. Between experiments, they had this monkey hooked up to electrodes. The experimenter reached for his glass of water, and the screen sort of lit up as if there was some neural activity uh, by the monkey, and it lit up in a pattern that looked like the monkey was actually doing something physical, like reaching for something, but yet the monkey wasn't moving. And what the researcher surmised is that something's happening in the brain that's mirroring the action of me, the scientist. And when he discovered that there were these mirror neurons, that there was a set of neurons in the brain that were actually mirroring what was going on outside with the person that they were around. Their brain was firing off as if they were reaching for the glass. And we think this is probably the fundamental neuroscientific basis for empathy. 
that when you ex express emotion, something in me feels that emotion. Right? When you do something, you become excited and animated. My face tends to match your face. And there's a mirror neuron system there. So when we have a caretaker, a loved one, an attachment figure, who's able to say, oh, you're hurting right now. I'm so sorry that hurts, doesn't it? It's okay, you can tell me about your hurt. That whole language, the facial expression, the care and compassion is being mirrored by the person receiving it. And they're saying in their brain, oh yeah, this does hurt. Yeah, I do want to take care of myself. My feelings are important, right? That's the messaging that's going on inside. Of course, there are those of us who didn't get that, right? And that has a different story, a different impact. There's something else going on with attachment, and that's that there's this sort of cognitive emotional attunement, right? So Judy did a wonderful job talking about the limbic system, where those reward circuits are housed, right? And we need that limbic system. We need that emotional primitive part of our brain to help us to know where danger is. We're alive today as a species because we're able to avoid danger, because we're able to deal with stress, and because we're able to recognize where the pitfalls are, anticipate them, navigate them successfully. And we can't be fearful all the time. So we have this frontal lobe, this newer part of the brain that helps to regulate and coordinate the fear center of the brain. So those centers are important, but the connections between them are really important. The way that those get wired up is really important. It turns out that attachment helps us to correctly wire that up. It helps us to know when to be fearful, when to step back, when to be a little bit wary, when to avoid a little bit, and when to move in, when to approach, when to open up, when to be vulnerable, when to share. Right? So the attachment relationship helps those wiring those parts of the brain to be wired together in a way that facilitates, I would say, healthy living, right? But for many people, that doesn't happen. These circuits are all, ab all about integration and regulation. Trauma, almost by definition, means that those experiences don't get integrated or regulated, right? They either get suppressed, repressed, compartmentalized, or we have some way of sort of like pushing them aside, which addictions do a wonderful job at. So good attachment is about integrating and regulating our experience. And secure attachment is really about regulation, about nervous system regulation. We'll get to that in this next slide a little bit. And as you just heard in terms of the reward pathways, it turns out that connection, attachment, relationship has a lot to do with dopamine reward pathways. In fact, those sex, of course, is in the reward pathway, but even close contact connection is in the reward pathways. Another neurochemical is oxytocin, the so-called trust hormone, right? These chemicals are actually generated when we are in close contact, when we are in a secure attachment relationship. And, of course, they can be both pleasurable and regulating at the same time. Oxytocin helps to regulate the nervous system. 
Dopamine, of course, is rewarding. It makes close contact rewarding. That's been evolutionarily selected for those little critters that you know, felt sort of like, oh, this is yummy having a partner. And then they, of course, pass that on, and their children usually did better and pass those genes on. So this has been selected for over time. So if you, there's a wonderful experiment done in Canada, which really was the start of epigenetics. If you haven't heard of epigenetics, it's one of the most exciting things, I think, to come around in the last decade or two. Um, and it's the idea that we used to think that you would just get your genes from mom and dad, and then you were stuck with those genes forever, unless you had some sort of rare, random mutation, then you, know, you had the genes that you had, and there was really no getting around that. And now we understand that the environment actually causes changes in genetic expression. And one of the most interesting ways in which the environment changes genetic expression is through the caregiving environment. So the kind of care we receive, the relationships that we're in, actually changes the way that our genes are expressed. It turns genes on and off. Right? So they were studying these mice. And they found that the mice that were handled more by the research assistants, by the humans, grew up to be better regulated, they explored their environment more. When they were put in the maze, they did really good. They had great little relationships with other rats. They were better parents to their little rat babies. And they thought, maybe there's something about human touch, right? And fortunately, they didn't stop there, because what they found was that it was actually mother was coming to lick off the human touch. And it was mom's licking behavior that was so good for these baby rats. Because if you really want to be a good rat mommy, you lick your little pups a lot, and you arch your back when you're nursing them so you can touch them, and you can lick them, and you can play with them while they're nursing. That's like really, really good you know, rat mommy behavior. And so actually, all that licking changed the genes of these little rat pups so that they were better regulated when they were adults. And they have, the, they have the molecular biology of this pretty well worked out. We know which genes are turned on by that licking behavior. And if you block that mother from licking her young, those little rat pups suffer. Not just psychologically. They suffer biologically. They don't regulate their temperature as well. They don't regulate, regulate their blood pressure as well. They have a difficult time maintaining homeostasis. Right. So this is biology. Our biology is changed by our relationships. So dopamine is a big part of that. If you make a lesion in the dopamine reward circuit of that rat mommy who was a good licker and a good arched back nurser, that mom actually starts to neglect her young. She doesn't build a nest. She doesn't carry them around in her mouth. She doesn't lick them. When she doesn't feel that pleasure that comes from her parenting, then she doesn't do it. And those little rat pups that were neglected by the mom who had a lesion in her dopamine reward circuit grow up to use cocaine at higher rates than pups who were handled uh, well by their, their rat mommy. So when we don't get that nourishment to our dopamine reward circuits, when we aren't being stimulated in these healthy ways, we're left more vulnerable to hijack those reward systems, right? We talk about self-medication in recovery. Literally, these folks are self-medicating. They're helping themselves to be regulated because they didn't get the regulation tools they needed from their close relationships. Their dopamine circuits, their nervous system regulation circuits were not um, optimally modified by their social situation. 
Well, safe and trusting relationships keep us connected to our original center. Mirror neurons allow us to have an embodied experience of other people's feelings for us. We develop pathways that I'm an okay person, it's okay to be who I am, based on how we're being treated. Dopamine makes secure attachment rewarding so that connection feels good. Oxytocin enables trust and reduces fear, anxiety, and stress by helping to regulate the limbic system. And secure attachment fosters connection to our true self and prevents that filming over all of those survival techniques that we learn in less than optimal ways. Well, again, we don't always have that experience of secure attachment. Some of us have something that's not quite as optimal. And this is a poem that sort of captures maybe a little t trauma. We talk about big t trauma, little t trauma. And this is probably a little t trauma, but still meaningful. And I'm sorry, but I'll have to read it from here. It's called Ordinary Heartbreak. She climbs easily on the box that seats her above the swivel chair at adult height, crosses her legs, left ankle over right, smooths the plastic apron over her lap while the beautician lifts her ponytail and laughs. This is as coarse as a horse's tail, and then, as if that's all there was to say, the woman at once whacks it off and tosses its foot and a half length into the trash. And the little girl who didn't want her haircut, but long ago learned successfully how not to say what it is she wants, who even at this minute cannot quite grasp her shock and grief, is getting her haircut for convenience, her mother put it, the long waves gone that had been evidence at night when loosened from their clasp that she might secretly be a princess. And rather than cry out, she grips her own wrist and looks to her mother in the mirror. But her mother is too polite or too reserved. And so the girl herself takes up indifference, while the pain follows a hidden channel to a deep place almost unknown in her. Convinced as she is that her own emotions are not the ones her life depends on, she shifts her gaze from her mother's face back to the haircut now so steadily as if this short-haired child were someone else. So this is an example of little T trauma. Now, one experience like this probably can be absorbed and soaked up. But day after day, experiences like this are going to have an impact. right? And when we think that our feelings, our emotions, what's happening inside of us is less important than what's going on outside of us to survive. Then we lose track of who we are. We don't have the ability to sort of explore who we might be, our thoughts and feelings, but we're sort of living a little bit outside of ourselves in order to survive. And we can go that way for a long time, right? I went that way for a long time really lost, not knowing who I was, and doing a lot of really unhealthy things to try and keep the mess you know, at a minimum. Right? Well, relational trauma and attachment disturbances can result in this kind of filming over, an unconscious process of learning to live outside of our center for the purpose of self-preservation and survival. And it's a, it's a, a setup for toxic shame. Because at some deep place, there's this feeling of not okayness, not enough, not good enough, right? And there's like this feeling of having to constantly um, create or become. And we lose track of the essence of who we are, which is probably okay just as it is and doesn't need anything else. 
I want to get to, I guess I'll say a few things here. One is that I'm very interested in the idea that children have these sort of two systems. They have this attachment system, which is about safety, security. And then they have this fear, kind of danger system, right? The limbic system. But what happens when you are parent is both the source of your safety and the source of your fear. And sometimes you can show uh, one of the quickest ways to get the amygdala to fire, which is one of the key, um, key structures in the limbic system, recognizes fear. One of the best ways to get it to fire off, you can show a spider or a snake, and almost always the limbic system, the amygdala, will fire off. But you can also show it a picture of a human face with a fearful face expression. Because we probably have learned over ages of time that when we see fearful faces, we should get afraid too. Because we are in packs and groups and clans, and we're like, oh, everybody's afraid. There must be something bad coming, right? Dogs do this. They look at their masters, and they're like, you're really angry and upset. I better be <laughs> angry and upset, right? So um, we've learned to read faces, and we're really good at reading faces. And uh, you can set the amygdala off by having a fearful face, right? So it doesn't have to be you know, really serious overt trauma, but if you've got a really fearful parent, and that child is around the fearful parent, they have unresolved fear from their childhood, maybe. That child's picking up on some fearful energy. Right? So what does the child do, then, when they're faced with this dilemma that they should move towards for safety, but their limbic system is saying, you better move back, because that feels a little dangerous. How do we work that out as infants, right, as children? Well, one of the things we do is we develop an attachment style, basically. And you can think about attachment being on two basic dimensions. One dimension is anxious and preoccupied, that we're anxious about the attachment relationship. We think about it a lot. We worry about it. It's heavy on our mind, right? Another dimension is attachment-related avoidance. And from these two different dimensions, you can come up with some sort of categories. If you're low on both, then you would be secure in your attachment style. If you're really high in that anxious, preoccupied attachment style, then you'd be sort of anxiously attached. We sometimes call that love addiction in the recovery field. If you're high in attachment-related avoidance and low in attachment-related anxiety, you would be that sort of avoidant attachment style, love avoidant. And we have people who are high in both dimensions and that sometimes is called fearful attachment style. I did a study at the Meadows around 450 people that came through the Meadows in 2013. The most common attachment style in that group of people was high in both. They had high levels of avoidance and high levels of anxious, preoccupied attachment style. The more trauma you have, the more likely you are to have both styles operating at the same time. And it may show up different with different partners and different with different genders. You might be one way with your mother, and you might be a different way with your father. You might be one way with your ex and a different way with your current partner. Right? So the, the, the relationship puts some pressure on our attachment style. But fundamentally, we come into adulthood with some strategies, some ways that we survived, some ways that we negotiated our childhood upbringing. And for many of us who maybe had some conflicts in childhood, we figured that out, learned, unconsciously, implicitly, how to navigate that by developing an attachment style. Have any of you seen this before? 
Okay, I think some of you have. I think I'll skip it in favor of some, some kind of clinical um, focus a little later, but basically it's a research paradigm where a baby is, baby and mom are interacting, and then mom has a still face, an emotionless face. And what you notice is that baby notices immediately. So we are face-reading creatures. So if we think that little t trauma doesn't matter, when you watch a video like this, you recognize that kids are paying attention. They're, they, they're aware of the energy in the room. They may not know, know what to say about it or how to put it into words or what to do about it, but they feel that. And it's important in our development. Well, the attachment system provides a framework for understanding the far-reaching effects of childhood maltreatment on adult functioning and the filming over of where we begin. The attachment system is active from cradle to grave, affecting child development, peer friendships, romantic pair bonding, sexuality, and parenting. It helps explain the intergenerational transmission of social-emotional functioning. And we see this, that a parent who had a difficult childhood, that becomes one of the key factors in their ability to attach to their own child. And so then we see this intergenerational transmission of some of these difficulties, right? Not only do you have the genetics, but you have this sort of like environmental piece that's being carried through. I should say that that study with the rats, right? Mom had the lesion in the dopamine reward circuit, didn't pay attention to the pups. Pups suffered from that. But we now know that you can cross foster. You can take those pups who had a low licking mother and you can move them into a litter with a high licking mother and their brain changes. So it's not that the low licking mom had bad genes and she passed those bad genes onto her pups and that's why those pups were suffering later in life. It had a lot to do with the environment. And when you change that pup's environment, you change the trajectory of their development. So I think that's a hopeful note. Um, it's wonderful to see that we have many people in this audience who work with young adults and with young people. And that getting into recovery early can mean a lot for that developmental trajectory. Well, let's talk a little bit about attachment anxiety or preoccupation. Attachment anxiety Oftentimes, the setup for attachment anxiety or love addiction is a parent or attachment figure who was inconsistently available, sometimes there, sometimes not there. Maybe they had their own addiction, and sometimes they were sober and would show up, and other times they were unavailable. And so what some children learn to do, again, learn in quotes, how they adapt to that situation is they learn that if they really amplify the attachment signal, if they really make their needs known, if they have a really dramatic display of, I need you, be here, don't leave me, I can't do it without you, then that parent attachment figure will be there enough to sort of keep things going. It's a little bit like a slot machine, right? We put the coins in because every once in a while we get a payout and we're like, okay, oh yeah, okay, this is good, right? If we just got you know, four cents back on every nickel, we'd go, hey, this doesn't make any sense at all. But we get that payout, much like this child with that parent who can be there once in a while, and so we keep at it, we keep at it. So that attachment-anxious preoccupation style is really born out of that, um, that sort of environment where they learn to amplify the signal, I need you, don't leave me, I can't do it without you, lots of emotion oftentimes, lots of thinking about the relationship trying to change themselves to make the relationship work, right? Like, if I just do this, maybe they'll be here. Maybe they'll stay. Maybe they won't go away. If I can just be smart, if I can just, you know, take care of the rest of the kids, if I can just do my schoolwork right, then this person will be here, right? That's the hope. 
Oftentimes they blame themselves. It's, a, it's I'm the problem. If I were different, then this person would be here. Let's talk about attachment avoidance then. Attachment avoidance often comes from a situation where you have an a attachment figure, parent, caregiver, who is either really dismissing, rejecting, neglectful, or abusive. And so the child then learns to shut down their attachment needs, deactivate the attachment system. Right? It's too scary, or I don't get what I need when I go to my attachment figure, so I'm just going to have to do this alone. Hide my vulnerabilities, not show a lot of emotion, suppress my thoughts about the need for connection. I'm an island, I'm a rock, I'm going to have to go alone, right? So these are the two fundamental styles that we see in attachment. And of course, these two styles can create a filming over of where we begin. For the attachment anxiety folks, there's this fear of abandonment. This, the, the mantra, the thought process is oftentimes, I'm not enough. They ruminate about their relationship. They're constantly thinking about it, right? They make a lot of calls, a lot of checking in, sort of a sort of fearful uh, kind of fear of abandonment. Emotion dysregulation. Remember, emotion dysregulation was adaptive. Having a lot of emotion, being dysregulated, actually helped that aloof caregiver to be there and be present. High vulnerability. Cling and hold on to the relationship. I can't let go. I want you to heal my wounds. Right? So that's the anxious attachment style. So if we think about the avoidant attachment style, I fear intimacy, I can't trust, suppress emotions, unclear about what I'm feeling inside oftentimes, invulnerable, I withdraw and isolate, I'm not very comfortable with connection and closeness, sort of this rugged individualism, I hide my wounds, alone is safer. So you get a feel for these two different styles? Yeah? You probably met somebody who has something like this. Not you, of course, but a friend or, yeah. Of course, it's not uncommon for these two styles to match up, right? So we see that quite often. So oftentimes, the attachment anxiety person, the love addict, sort of feels chronically like I'm not enough, I need somebody else to fill me up and to complete me, right? They feel a little bit one down, as we say at the Meadows. The avoidant attachment person is used to doing things on their own, taking care of business, not needing a lot of input. So when they meet, the love, the attachment anxiety love addict is sort of like, oh, you've got it all together. You're going to be able to help me. You're going to complete me, right? I'll bring 50%, you bring a little bit more maybe. And... Uh, <laughs> And we're, this is going to be great, right? And the, the love avoidant, the avoidant attachment person, they can do seduction and they can do you know, infatuation and limerence. That's not a problem. They're pretty good at that, actually. Where they struggle is intimacy, right? So when it starts to get a little closer, when they have to really start to share and open up, when they have to really be there, then they're sort of like, oh, okay. And they start to pop out. Then the love addict, the anxious attachment style person is like, why are you leaving me? I can't do it on my own. So they start to chase. The love avoidant, who's like not very comfortable being close and sharing, is like, uh, I'm ouskies. And then you're sort of in that loop, right? So that happens, again, probably to your friends and family members. But. So that happens a lot. 
So I love working with couples because when you have an attachment perspective, you start to see it in the room right away. You know, the body language, it's like they're leaning this way, you know, like one person's leaning away, the other person's leaning. So you can just pick it up and boom, you know, just go right in and start doing the work. It's great. I'm an, I'm an avoidant, kind of a classic avoidant. I had a very abusive father, learned to avoid, learned to just shut it down, do my own thing. So I'm not talking about other people here. I'm, I'm definitely an avoidant. I have to work really, really hard on being vulnerable, opening up, allowing myself to be seen, allowing myself to be close to people. I don't want to trust oftentimes. I can shut down really fast and easy. So it's a real work. Like, I, I, there's times where I go to give a hug to my partner, who's this wonderful really, really connected person. And um, I'll just feel myself holding back a little bit, you know? Like a little bit of a side hug, you know? Like, oh. <laughs> right? Where I just don't totally give myself into the embrace, you know? And I have to sort of check myself with some mindfulness and go, oh, isn't that interesting? Look at that. There's some part of me that's just kind of holding back. What would it be like to just let go into this a little bit? The avoidant is oftentimes fearing engulfment, too. So I didn't mention that. But um, if you have a parent who's really overly involved, helicopter parent, and meshing, then one way to deal with that is an avoidance strategy. Like, OK, I'll get my knees met, but I'm going to go have my own little life that you don't take over. right? And we see a lot more enmeshment these days. right? Because I, like, I get like a notification on my phone every time my son's grade changes in his high school. You know, and it's like, hey, I just noticed you got a B minus, B minus, you know? It's like, we're so overly involved in our kids' lives, I think, you know? And so it's really easy to be enmeshing. And enmeshing means that the parent is getting their needs met through the child, basically. Sounds harsh, but happens all the time. So my son says, hey, I want to I be a pottery person. And I say, no, you're going to be a football player, because I didn't play football. And by golly, you're going to be a football player, right? So I'm getting my needs met through my child. That's enmeshment, and the child then learns to shut down the connection, do their own thing, have a little secret life going on where they just kind of do their own stuff. Right? Well, you know, I sort of wondered, these two styles of attachment, it seemed to me that maybe mindfulness and self-compassion might be an antidote, might be a help to these two styles. And this is sort of what we want to accomplish through mindfulness and self-compassion. For the anxious attachment style, maybe reduce some of the rumination. They do a lot of thinking about the relationship. Where's my partner? Do they still like me? Oh, you know, they're always a sort of fretting about the relationship. Is it going to end? Will they be there when I need them? Kind of reduce some of that rumination and fearful thinking, or at least be aware of it. And then negative emotion, start to kind of regulate that a little bit better. Have more compassion towards their inner life, because they're really hard on themselves oftentimes. Like something's wrong with me, and that's why people run. Right? To be more complete and whole in a relationship, to realize that I'm OK just as I am, that I'm going to bring 100%, you can bring 100%, and we'll create interdependence, that I don't need you to complete me. Right? To be able to have a greater capacity to be with oneself and to reconnect with their original center. For our avoidant attachment folks, we want to reduce suppression of emotion to cultivate more curiosity about their inner life. Right? They've learned to just sort of shut it down and soldier on. So we want them to be able to sort of slow down and go, wow, what am I feeling? It's OK to be vulnerable. What's it like to reach out? Stay with difficult thoughts and emotions, more clarity about their emotional landscape, accept and share their vulnerabilities with others. 
uh, open their heart to trust others and then reconnect with our uh, original center. Right? So these are some of the ideas that I had that maybe mindfulness and self-compassion might help these folks with. Um, and then uh, we went to work on studying that and creating some interventions. And the hope is that by doing this work, you sort of peel back that film, that layer of adaptation that was necessary for survival, but really isn't helping us a whole lot to move into that next stage of living. Right? Well, I won't say much about definitions of mindfulness, because John will be up next, and will do a great job of that. I will say a little bit about what, uh, what time is it? I left my, watch, my clock up here. What time do I have? Five minutes? OK, great. Good. Then this is just where I want to be. I'll skip past this. Um, I'll, oh, OK, I won't skip this one. All right. Uh, this is Rumi, who I think was a 12-stepper. And uh, he says, uh, this being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. So I love this. This is sort of mindfulness, right? Sort of, can we be curious about what's showing up on our doorstep? Can we, I don't know, I have a hard time laughing and inviting things in, like shame and malice, but, but can, we, can we sort of open our heart to what is there and not push it away, numb it, escape it, run from it, or get sort of tumbling downstream in the middle of it? But can we invite it in? And when we do that sort of healing work, when we can say yes to our experience in the present moment, something beautiful happens, right? It becomes a guide from beyond. So all of a sudden, the pain that was sending me out to use becomes a teacher. All of a sudden, the fear and anxiety that was causing me to isolate and withdraw becomes a guide. And this doesn't happen overnight, of course, but the healing journey is, is a worthwhile journey to take. It takes time, but it's worth it. So this is sort of how I operationalize mindfulness. Um, it's the, in medicine, we have a lot of mnemonics, ways of memorizing things, and so this is praise. I stole some of this from Tara Brock, and I always give her credit because she's a wonderful teacher, and um, she has the RAI, and I stole the RAI from her and turned it into praise. But this is sort of my practical rubber-meets-the-road mindfulness. This is what I teach patients and clinicians all the time. So one of the things that we need to, and I, I'll, I'll preface it with this. I'm really interested in how to utilize mindfulness around those trauma and attachment disturbances, which is really tough. Because mindfulness is sort of an embodied experience, right? And trauma oftentimes happens in the body. So getting traumatized people to stay in their bodies is not really easy, I found. I started doing this work, and they were like, bye-bye. See you later. Nice knowing you, Doc, but this is not working. So I've had to really work with how do we get traumatized people, dysregulated people, disintegrated people to come back home. I was seeing the word homeostasis through new eyes today because 
It's almost like this stability of home. When we help our clients to be in their body, their body becomes a homecoming, a place for homecoming. And we carry this thing around with us wherever we go, right? For the longest time in my life, my body was kind of the chauffeur for my head. It was just like, you know, take me to my next meeting, please. You know, like, I had very little use for my body. It was sort of this thing that was just like following me around or, you know, taking my important part to places. And, uh, but now, like, my body's this rich, rich, wonderful place. It's a homecoming, right? And after 12 years of practice, there's a moment where I can go and take a breath, and there's some sort of, ah, like I'm home. I'm back home, right? So a lot of our patients don't have that, and a lot of them get triggered really easy into reactivity, what I call reactivity, which is their old trauma-based survival mechanisms of reactivity. A lot of fight, flight, and fear, and freeze, right? So I love using this with those folks when they get into that reactivity. I tell people, if your reactivity is over a three on a scale from one to 10, there's a good chance it's got a link to something from the past. You know, If it feels like it's sort of out of proportion from what's going on in the circumstances, then it's probably linked to the past. And um, you can have a lot of compassion for yourselves, yourself because um, it was there for a reason. It was there to help you. That reactivity was probably keeping you survived. And it's run its course, and there's a different way now. So I'll say thank you to your survival mechanisms and the reactivity that was there. And I'm open to something new. Right? So praise. So the first is pause, that we have to develop a way to pause. This life is very busy, tons of distractions. It's really easy just to go from one thing to the next. I have this 14-year-old son. And um, when he was younger, he loved Bear Grylls, you know, the survivalist guy. And like for like a teenager, like a preteen, like Bear Grylls is like the coolest guy ever because he just like, you know, takes off his clothes when he wants to and jumps into rivers and eats bugs. And I mean, little boys are like, I want to be him, right? And so my son gave me a Bear Grylls survival kit for Christmas. And about noon in Phoenix, Arizona on Christmas Day, he was like, Dad, let's go make fire. So um, we took the survival kit and flint and steel and went and made fire. And I was teaching him the log cabin method of making fire. And I was like, you know, you got to put the logs here. And he was like, really super tightly packed logs, you know. And the learning lesson was, well, you've got the fuel, but fire needs something else. It needs space. It needs air, right? Or it doesn't take spark. And that's a little bit like our lives. We can pack it in just like, right? But there's just no room for something to take spark. So we have to develop a practice, a way of being that puts some gaps in our life so that something can take spark. So there's like an intention to pause, an intention to slow down and be here for the life that is here, an intention to say yes to my experience as it is, an intention to say, maybe I don't have to lean so much into the next moment, hoping it has what I think this moment doesn't have. What, the, the radical inquiry, I think, is, what if this moment had everything I needed? What if? The person I am right now is just okay as I am, you know. So that's the pause. And also it's like a, a real pause, you know, creating a little space in our experience. And then being able to recognize reactivity, recognize what is coming up in the moment, especially when it's that reactive piece, something from the past, right? And we recognize it by sensing it in the body. 
we recognize the reactivity because we feel the sensation of sort of that sort of pit in our stomach feeling or the heat on the back of our neck or the tension that we feel in our hands. So the body becomes the gateway for the whole process. And then can I be with what is here? Can I allow and accept in this moment what I'm experiencing? Instead of trying to push it away or mindlessly sort of tumbling down into it. And then the investigation part is not so much an analysis, kind of, you know, like psychoanalysis investigation. It's much more of a deepening our awareness with what is coming up. Can I be even more present with what is here? Can I really just open my heart and get curious about what this is about? Sensing it in the body. Don't get caught up in the head. The head will tell us the storyline. The storyline is oftentimes not so true. So we stay in the body experience of it. And then there's this moment of enlightenment, right? Not the sort of like mm, enlightenment, but almost like a, a witness observer to our own experience enlightenment. And this is where I think the magic of mindfulness is, where if we're not so much in the reactivity and we're able to notice the reactivity moving through, then what part of us is the noticer? What part of us has become the witness to the reactivity? It's something different than the reactivity. And if we've been identified our whole life, if we've identified ourselves our whole life with the reactive ways that we learn to survive, that experience of being able to back up and say, I'm not. The totality of who I am is not my reactivity, is not my learned behaviors for survival, is not my anger or my fear. That's just what's moving through in this moment. I am big sky. I am the universe. I am the light above the gates of the festival, as Rumi says. So when we back up from that momentary reactivity and we embody something bigger, we're in some other state that's able to hold space for the woundedness that is there. And that, that is the essence of the healing journey. When we can back up and be there for our own woundedness and invite safe people in to be part of that journey with us. I think that's when real healing can take place. And mindfulness is just one pathway to that. There's lots of ways there. I spent some time in Japan, and they say there are many roads to the top of Mount Fuji. You know, so there's many roads to it. This is just one pathway there. I'll end with uh, one, one story uh, and, and one poem, and then I'll be done. So, um, so there's a uh, Buddhist shrine or temple in, I, I think it was in Burma, what was Burma. And um, the government said, you're going to have to move this temple because we're building a road. And so they said, okay. And they were moving it. And within the temple was their prized Buddha, a very large clay Buddha. And they tore down the temple and they started to move this very large clay Buddha. And they hooked it up to cranes, and as they moved it, it started to crack. And then it started to rain, and so they called off the operation. The monks went to bed. In the middle of the night, the head monk came out with a flashlight, and he lifted up the tarp over the clay Buddha, and he shined his light on the crack to see if it had gotten worse. And from the crack, he saw this bright light, and he got curious about it. And he went and got his chisel and hammer, and he started to chip away at the shards of clay. And underneath, he found a solid gold Buddha, one of the largest of its kind. And you know, hundreds of years before, the people in that place were being invaded by an army. 
and they covered over their solid gold Buddha to protect it, and they died with the secret of it. And it wasn't discovered until the 1950s. And so many of us have had our own invading armies in childhood. We've had our own difficult times, and we've covered over, we've layered over in order to protect the essence of who we are. We've filmed over that spot of grace. And, you know, we and our clients get the opportunity every once in a while to just see that light kind of poke through the cracks. And then we do the hard work of chipping away at the ways in which we protect it in order to kind of find the essence of who we are. So that's, that's my hope for, for me and for us and for the people that we work with in recovery. Thank you very much.